You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire. One hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Joe toko ingoa no mai haere mai ki te wire mō tēnei rā. Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Rāmere, the 27th of January. I'm your host Joe and I'll be with you for the next hour. Uh, accompanied by my producers Daniel and David. How are we today, fellas? Good, good. Kia ora. The very mic is cold. not in a, in a very, very hot, bit of humid. Uh, the mic is not in a good position there. But um, yes, we have a great show planned for you guys today. David brings us city councilling with Mike Lee talking about Auckland transport problems and trying to create a marine reserve on Waiheke Island. I'll be looking at the New Zealand government failing to raise the minimum age of criminal responsibility. Daniel will be looking at sharks today, as new research shows that two in three of the sharks that depend on coral reefs are being driven to extinction. He also spoke with Chris Button about how he can improve water safety education. David also spoke to Alexander Gillespie about Western nations donating tanks to the Ukrainian war effort. Um, as well as he also spoke to Richard Esther from the University of Auckland about light pollution. We have a great show for you guys today, so keep it on the B for the next hour. Here aha Ofokaro would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces. So Tukipa Tui Mai, you can text us on 5395. Why Mai or give us a call in studio on 0930938793. Also remember you can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95 BFM website. Now into the wire for this Friday. Now, tell me about your father. City Councilling on 95BFM, our weekly chat with the good people of Auckland Council. Auckland Transports is recommending that people drive to Elton John's concert tonight and tomorrow, um, Is and that is leaving people bewildered. Also, what why Hiki residents want to see a marine reserve created in the northern part of the island. However, Doc, they say Doc is dragging their feet on the issue. I spoke to M- Councillor Mike Lee on the two topics. Auckland Transport's encouraging people to drive to Elton John and Mount Smart this evening. How That's a bit unprecedented. It is, and um, it all goes back to this uh, shutdown rolling shutdown of the rail network, which AT um, has agreed by Kiwi Rail, but which AT has agreed to, um, which I um, don't agree with. I believe it could have been done in a way that less inconvenienced the travelling public. Um, But however, they did it in a way that best convenienced engineering. Um, here is a situation, though, where they could easily switch on or keep the network running um, for this big international event, um, a, 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 particularly tomorrow, which is what the, the concern is about. There is not, even if everyone did drive, there's not enough car parks there anyway. It's, it's Mount Smart is situated in an, an industrial area. Um, it's kind of difficult. It's a long walk. Um, the, the bus service is, is, is ramshackle, to be honest, um, the rail replacement. And so I, um, I am urging AT 
to get on the phone to KiwiRail and tell them to, to, to keep the network operating tomorrow. It's bad enough for ordinary people day after day, but here is a situation where we'll have a repetition if we're not careful of that disastrous Rugby World Cup opening night where there was a huge cross-public transport meltdown. And to be honest with you, I don't think ATIA recovered its reputation since that time. This could be avoided and should be avoided. Is there a rail replacement service going on? There is a, a rail replacement service going on, and it's and obviously it's totally inadequate. I, I've tried it. I tried it last Saturday, and it was useless, to be honest with you. I, I don't like to be unkind. Um, in the end, my wife made, me, made us get off, and she ordered an Uber because the bus driver was totally confused um, about the situation. The bus driver was going to stop the bus at uh, Otahuhu, and that was the end of the line. I said, well, we're going to Newmarket. I said, well, you can get a train there, but there, there was no trains. But um, So even the people who have been asked to, to do the base, replace, base, sorry, the bus replacement service are not instructing their staff well enough. Um, so a weekday, it's even worse. You've got um, uh, commuters who, who have now had years of rail commuting um, culture, been asked to, to pile into 40-seater buses, one every half an hour, um, where to get out of trains that can carry 500 people or 400 and something people and travel at speeds of up to 100 kilometres per hour, having to get into a bus with buses with inadequate capacity, which have to share the road with the rest of the traffic. It's not good at all. It, 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 this has not been well thought through from the point of view of the travelling public. Slow walking, processing a marine reserve application for the Hauraki Gulf. What what is that? Oh, what what it's it's been quite well covered um, in news newsroom um, with several articles. But essentially, I'm a member of a group that. Uh, uh, made an application, wrote an application, a lengthy and detailed application for a marine reserve in the Hauraki Gulf um, off northwest Waiheke Island called the Hakai Mongo Matiatia Northwest Waiheke Marine Reserve, 2,350 hectares. It would be, will be, I hope, the biggest marine reserve in the Gulf. This, uh, against a background of uh, constant news about how the ecosystem in the Hauraki Gulf is really being hammered, and so something has to be done about it. And so rather than DOC um, taking this initiative, we as a group of mainly Waiheke people um, undertook to write this lengthy application. Um, we sent it to the Department of Conservation in uh, April 2021. In January 2022, a year ago, it was publicly notified under the quite stringent timelines of the Marine Reserves Act. There was two months for public submissions. We got 1,300 submissions. 93% were in support. Doc, um, 
uh, place a lot of weight on their treaty obligations. And so as part of that, they asked uh, submitters to indicate their, uh, whether they're Maori or not. So 70% of submitters who identified as Maori supported it. Um, one of the two Tangata Whenua groups, uh, which has Rohi over the inner gulf in Waiheke, the Ngati Power Trust Board, came out strongly in support of it. In fact, wanted to be a co-applicant. Um, Doc said, well, it's too late to do that. But um, but another, um, uh, the uh, Tangata Whenua group, the Ngati Power Iwi Trust, opposed it. And so we were then obliged to go through the most exacting task of responding to all objections. And there were, given the um, the weight of support, there weren't that many, but it covered about 150 objection points. So we had to cover all of that in a month, and we completed mainly over Easter, actually. We worked long hours as a team, but we got it done a, a neat document, and we got it in on time uh, to the minister's office responding to objectives, and that was in April 2022, last year. Nothing essentially has been done by the Department of Conservation to provide the minister. Uh, no advice has been provided by DOC to the minister whether this is a good idea or not. Um, they are still going through bureaucratic processes. They say that um, their treaty obligations means they have to keep on consulting kind of ad infinitum. But essentially, they got into a situation where they're trying to referee, uh, I take it, between the conflicting demands of two, <coughs> excuse me, every groups. And we just had a meeting with them the other day, um, an online meeting, and I pointed out to them, you've got uh, an impasse there, and just dragging the chain, slow walking, uh, holding things up is, 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 is not the right thing to do. A, a political decision, political judgment needs to be made about these conflicting interests, and indeed, the, the merits of this application, and that can only come from the minister. What kind of an impact will this, um, or yeah, what kind of a scientific benefit um, or an impact will this marine reserve have on on Waiheke? It, it will be protecting the environment on land and sea and letting nature recover uh, can only be good. The present situation in the Hauraki Gulf, we have the scientists tell us we have, starting from a base point of, of, of virgin biomass, 57% uh, decline in key fish species, 67% decline in seabirds, a uh, 76% decline in coda or, or crayfish, 83% uh, decline in snapper, you know, 86% decline in sharks, mainly school sharks, which were of great economic importance to Māori, um, and you know, nearly 100% or 97% decline in, in marine mammals, whale, dolphins, and seals. So 
the environment out there is not in good shape. And as Zoe Chu and her, her Auckland University team revealed, uh, something like the Lee Marine Reserve, the Cape Rodney to Okakakari Point Marine Reserve, which is tiny, 570 hectares, um, is the source of about um, 11%, 10.6% to be exact, of all the juvenile snapper they, they sampled in the Hauraki Gulf a couple of years ago, which just shows the generative power of a marine reserve properly placed and left alone to recover um, when it comes to restoring the ecosystem. That was City Councillor Mike Lee talking about Auckland Transport and a future potential marine reserve at Waiheke Island. Have you tried mindfulness? Try mindfulness. City Councilling on 95BFM. This is a sad, sad day. Um, BFM, the font of liberalism and tolerance at the <laughs> centre of the University of Auckland. The Wire. How to improve water safety education so the recent spate of drownings doesn't happen again. I spoke with Chris Button about this question. Chris is a lecturer at the University of Otago and School of Physical Education. There's much more water competencies than just swimming. We can distinguish 15 different skills, for example, floating, breath control, underwater swimming and recognizing hazards. And in 2018, a woman survived 10 hours in the ocean by floating. I was in the water for 10 hours, okay. so these wonderful guys rescued yes. me. Your name is? Kay. Okay. I am very lucky to be alive. I was wondering how important is floating in reducing drownings? Oh, it's a good question and I think it's, it's absolutely fundamental. Probably the very first thing that we um, need to, to learn how to float. Uh, unfortunately in swimming, the attention tends to be more on how we can get from one place to another, from A to B, from the side of a pool to the other side. And very little time is, spell, is spent sorry, on, on teaching us how to float effectively. There are various ways to do that. Yeah, how do you do that? What is the right technique to float efficiently? So if you've fallen into water and it's cold water, then the advice is to float on your back initially. So to, to lie on your back with your face out of the water. Um, and the reason for that is to get yourself accustomed to the cold water because you'll be experiencing cold shock. Now, if it's water that is um, uh, wavy or there's currents, rougher water, purposefully you're out in the ocean and you're being maybe swept along by a rip. In that case, again, it's important to relax. And again, floating on your back is, is, is a good strategy. But it might also be important to um, then begin to look up and to find where you are and, and um, navigate yourself. Of those 15 competencies, which one is the, do you think the most important one? Arguably, from water drownings, I would suggest that the knowledge of the environment is is really crucial. So that's right up there. Knowing, again, you know, about the uh, water temperature, conditions and how they might change. Yeah, most water competency lessons are done in swimming pools. Is this the right location 
or should we move them to more naturalistic environments? Yeah, it's, it's a complex issue, and I think um, a swimming pool is a good place to start. It's where most of us, I think, start our competency journey. Um, um, but unfortunately, for most people, it, it ends after having maybe learned to, to swim in a pool and then doesn't continue on beyond that. So um, I think the swimming pool is a good place to start. As I say, you can develop confidence. You know the environment's relatively predictable. There, It is supervised. So if you got into trouble, there's people to, to help look after you. Um, but not many people around the world are drowning in swimming pools. Um, they're more often drowning in open water. It does happen in pools, unfortunately, particularly private pools. But um, I think that the, the real problem is is when people then think that they can swim in a swimming pool and then try to, to swim out in the ocean or in, in, in lakes and rivers and in other open water locations where the conditions aren't as predictable or as comfortable, should we say, for swimming. Yeah, what would the ide- what would the ideal water safety education look like? How can we improve the contemporary system so that the tragedies of last week don't happen again? So I think what needs to happen is that um, a bit more attention needs to be paid to developing transferable water competencies. So ones that can be learned maybe initially in a pool, but then can be uh, practiced and, and perhaps adapted from water situations. So take floating, for example, it's fine to learn how to float on your back initially in a pool, but then it would be good, I think, to learn also how to do that and, um, if necessary, how to adapt it into perhaps a cold water such as a lake. Um, so it, it, I think education needs to concentrate on um, actually taking um, uh, learners into different aquatic environments and showing them how to adapt some of those skills. What about tourists or people visiting New Zealand? Um, like, mm. what do we do about that? They didn't have that education. Um, I think they need to know uh, where to go, where to go in terms of going to patrol there. That's one of the problems that we've seen in recent uh, weeks. People are not going to unpatrol beaches or lakes. And, um, you know, when they get into trouble, there's no one there to, to help rescue them. So so first and foremost, uh, the advice that Surf Lifesaving New Zealand provide, which is to go and go to a patrol beach where they can swim between flags and, and be looked after, is really, really important. That was Chris Button, lecturer at the University of Otago. You're on the wire for Ramede Friday. Remember, you can text us in 5395 or give us a call on 0930938790. That's 5395 if you'd like to text in. 0930938790 if you'd like to give us a call. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you've heard so far. We'll be right back after this short break. I don't know how to say this. Betelgeuse star? <laughs> You're not a child of the 80s. If you were, you would know the film with a similar name. The star is Betelgeuse. Oh. Yeah. The Wire. Bust out the sprinkler and set your lawnmower to stump. Gardens Music Festival is the brand new inner city garden boogie taking your summer by storm at the stunning new venue of Auckland Domain. Featuring a headline performance from living legend Fatboy Slim, plus 
Beaton, Sid Lowe, Peking Duck, John Morales, and more. Gardens Music Festival, Sunday, January 29th at Auckland Domain. Get your tickets now from gardensmusicfestival.co.nz. Doof, 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 ding. Bike Crave is back and coming to the Ōrake Basin, featuring the one and only Dan Ox. The most fun you can have on two wheels. Bike Crave takes you on a group ride ending at Ōrake Basin, where you'll park up for a silent party at the water's edge. Made possible by Auckland Transport, Bike Auckland, Club Mate and Interesting Things. Bike Crave Ōrake with Dan Ox, Saturday, February 4th. Tickets are free but extremely limited. Reserve yours now at Eventbrite. All right, spot time, I reckon. Got any utensils? We'll sacrifice some, eh? Uh, we're going to need a vessel to oscill the last of the sparkling <laughs> duet. Mm. <sighs> yes, yeah, spot song! Whoa, no, I, I mean the bear spot, you know? Amazing, independent, NZ bear. Ah, oh, the legal buzz, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> The 95 BFM Drive Show, a fully legal, three-hour psychedelic playground of japes, jive and jams. 4 to 7 p.m. every weekday, only on 95 BFM. Thanks to the Bear Spot, your tappy place. The government has indicated a The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire for Ramere Friday. This morning, the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child called out the failure of the New Zealand government to raise the minimum age of criminal responsibility. Referring to the current minimum age of criminal responsibility, the committee stated clearly that the New Zealand government is just not getting children's rights right. I spoke to Lisa Woods, Campaigns Director for Amnesty International Aotearoa, on this matter. Under international human rights standards, the minimum age for criminal responsibility is 14 and our criminal age of responsibility is 10, which is far too young. And so we have an obligation, the government has an obligation and a duty under their international human rights obligations to raise the age of criminal responsibility. And this isn't the first time the United Nations has called out uh, the government on this issue. Uh, it was back in 2019, uh, was the last time, and we've seen it again. So it's really unacceptable that it's taking so many years and the government is dragging its feet and meeting its obligations under international human rights. Why do you think reforms are taking so long? Yeah, look, it's, you know, it's really, I think, really frustrating and just completely unacceptable that it's taking so long. And I think that is a good question about why it's taking so long, and I guess only the the minister and the government can answer that one. But you know what we do know is that the age of ten is far too young. There's just an overwhelming amount of medical and psychological evidence that shows children's brains are still developing, particularly the part that regulates judgment and, and decision-making and impulse control. And as such, it's just not right to hold them accountable the same way we do as adults. And when we think about the issue of young people committing harm, you know, what's behind this can be really complex. But what research clearly indicates is that punitive approaches are just not effective at preventing reoffending. And what we're risking with our current approach, with the current legislation, uh, with criminal age, is that we're responding to issues caused by trauma, uh, a lack of health, a lack of mental health support, uh, by essentially, uh, so instead of solving these problems, we're essentially funneling children into a system that can trap them for the rest of their lives, doing irrevocable damage to the child, 
uh, in the rest of society. Amnesty International has also suggested a two-step strategy to approaching this issue. Uh, says here that the number of children committing serious offences in Aotearoa New Zealand is extremely small. There have been no reported cases of children aged 10 or 11 committing murder or manslaughter since at least the late 1970s. This means that in practice all offending by this age group is being addressed outside of the criminal justice system already. So a raise of the age of criminal responsibility to 12 years old can happen immediately. Yeah, so just as you said, because in practice uh, so many, um, oh, you know, we haven't, so basically um, 10 and 11 year olds uh, can only be held criminally liable for murder and manslaughter. And as, as you were just reporting there, there hasn't been a reported case of that that we're aware of for uh, many decades now. So in practice, all offending in that age group is dealt with already outside of the criminal justice system. So it would be very easy for the government to raise the age immediately uh, to 12. Uh, and what we want, and obviously you've got a, a slightly um, higher number of young people in that uh, older age group of 13 and 14 year olds. And what we want to make sure is that uh, when raising the age, that the processes and response responses we have uh, to those young people are safe, they're appropriate, and are going to protect the young person and, and deal with what's going on that might be causing them to commit the harm that they are doing. And in doing that, it's really important to be uh, talking and, and working with people impacted. But, you know, something that we've always said in this campaign as well, and this fundamentally goes back to our campaigning uh, in the criminal justice system, is that, you know, fundamentally... Uh, a lot of these issues in the criminal justice system come back to uh, Aotearoa's colonial history. So actually what's really important when we're thinking about systems such as the care and protection system, the criminal justice system, that actually we're doing that while talking about the need to properly recognise titidity and things such as uh, the, uh, of the whole of the care and protection system needs to be led by Māori. I'm reading here that there are pathways forward in terms of addressing these changes needed within our criminal justice system, uh, such as those set up by the Inaya Tonune Hui Maui report. Uh, this report builds on extensive work done by other researchers and advocates before them, um, including a, an influential paper published by Moana Jackson as well. Does this also address a problem within our judicial system that Māori have, have I'm very much overrepresented, and in specific, maybe Maori children as well. Yeah, absolutely. And this just comes back to the absolute need when we're having these discussions to fully recognise the harm that has come from colonialism, essentially, and that if we're fully going to address that harm, that means we need to fully and properly recognise Tatiti and the um, the the constitutional change that that entails and the need to ensure that uh, power is distributed accordingly to what is in Tatiti. And so that's that's essential when we're thinking about how is it that in the long term, uh, and when we're talking about structural change, we can make change that's really going to work. And things like raising the criminal ages is really important because those types of policies uh, reduce the harm, uh, can help try and reduce harm that is occurring now. But it's important that when we're doing that, that part of that conversation, we keep an eye on the need for those bigger structural changes as well.
Now, in 2021, the government advised that it was monitoring the progress of a working group set up to review the laws in Australia, where many states have set the minimum age of criminal responsibility at 10 years old. But since then, the New Zealand government have gone quiet despite the rising calls for reform. With the elections coming up this year, do you think this topic of conversation definitely needs to be pushed a lot further? Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, the the types of issues that we're talking about, you know, when we're getting it wrong, it's causing the deepest and most irrevocable harm to people. And so it's something that, uh, you know, cannot be brushed aside or or dealt with um, by superficial political slogans. We need real, sustained and um, um, action that's really meaningful and is doing what the evidence tells us, what we're obliged to do under our international human rights obligations and you know when we're thinking about when a child does something wrong it's often because they've been seriously let down by society and no one wants to see children or young people trapped in a system that they can never get out of for the rest of their lives the harm that to the individual to to family whanau to society is just massive from that so where we really need the conversations and where we need the action is in early interventions to protect and support young people rather than downstream interventions that are, you know, that are failing to address the underlying issues. And the concern is if you're only you know, sort of focusing on um, you know, that downstream stuff where we're not preventing uh, people entering the cycle. Last year, Amnesty International Aotearoa launched a petition urging Justice Minister Kiritapu Allen to raise the age of criminal responsibility to at least 14. Um, this was per August of last year. Obviously, with it being the very beginning of, of this year, what is some action that Amnesty International is looking to push in order to um, really get some reform? Yeah, like there's, look, there's lots of organisations and activists behind this campaign. Some have been working for many years on this, so it's something uh, where the mahi has been underway for a long, long time across lots of different parts of civil society, and that campaign is going to keep going. So we really encourage people to do what they can to support it, Uh, and one way is that we do have a petition on our website at amnesty.org.nz, so we'd really encourage people uh, to sign that and show their support and to help us put pressure on the minister to make this change. That was Lisa Woods from Amnesty International Aotearoa New Zealand speaking about the failure of the New Zealand government to raise the minimum age of criminal responsibility. Children eat worms and bugs and all sorts of things when they crawl in around. The Wire. Western nations are beginning to send tanks to Ukraine in their fight against the Russian aggression. I spoke to Alexander Gillespie from the University of Waikato about the issue and whether it will make a difference on the battlefield. So Ukraine's been asking for tanks for quite a long time and now the floodgates have opened and every nation wants to give it to them. Why is it important to have tanks on a battlefield? Well... First off, I'd say the Ukraine's been asking for a lot of things for a long time, and they're increasingly getting more of what they requested. And so there's still some things which they're not being given, like fighter aircraft. But what you are seeing is that they are given more increasingly offensive weapons or weapons that can be used to advance, not just defend. And tanks are the latest example of that. But before Christmas, you saw a number of long-range artillery systems also being given to them. 
why tanks are important is because that they provide mobility and if well used with artillery and soldiers that they, they can have a large impact on the battlefield and recapturing disputed territory. How much of a game changer do you think this is going to be? I think it's a little bit of a game changer. It's not huge. It, it's a very complicated war, and we've already seen that when the Russians invaded initially last year with thousands of tanks, that they couldn't succeed in their goal because of defensive mechanisms that the Ukrainians had. The Ukrainians have actually asked for 300 of the Western tanks, the, the German ones and the American ones and the British ones, but in total they're likely to get probably less than 100. I don't think it's a game changer, but I think it will help the war become much more of a stalemate and end up much more like a World War One trench warfare som type situation where both sides are equally balanced and neither one can advance. It feels like we're in that stage at the moment. And that becomes a huge problem because what you've got here is a war which is ultimately unsustainable. And when I say unsustainable, I mean the amount of soldiers that are being killed over there is getting quite large. And for someone like Putin, who's already lost you know, over 100,000 soldiers, that becomes a problem not only because he can't win the battlefield, but the more dead soldiers that you have at home, the more internal dissent you create with upset parents, upset upset loved ones and those who are very angry that they've lost their children or their, their sons and their daughters, primarily their sons in these battles. You talked about Ukrainians learning how to use Western weapons and they've been they've been very quick and quite effective at learning Western weapons. Do you think that tanks will be the same? I imagine they will and, and that learning of Western weapons is something that New Zealand's been involved with in training Ukrainian soldiers as well in the UK. I, it will take time, and it, it's not just about how to actually use the kit and use the machinery. It's also about how to use it in an integrated way on a very modern battlefield because the battlefield that you've got today is not like World War Two or World War One. It's cyber, and it's all connected, and so it's a completely different type of warfare. In the West giving Ukraine tanks, Russia seems to be shrugging and saying, so what? Do you think that they're secretly worried, or should they be worried? I think they will be worried. Every step's an escalation, and what you're seeing now increasingly is the best of the Western military technology being pitted against the best of the Russian military technology. And I, I don't think it will suddenly mean that the, the Russians will exit all of the Ukraine, because I think that you may have to have a negotiated peace settlement at some point. But this will mean that any hope of a, a spring offensive by the Russians that will completely overwhelm the opposition is extremely unlikely. What do you think the next few months of the war will look like? I know you talked about it bogging down into a trench warfare, but it's coming into summer, and the, we saw a lot of action um, last summer, but yeah, what, what do you think is going to happen over the next few months? I think it will become much more a war of attrition, and you, you will see significant losses in every area hard fought over. The problem, as I say, is that it's unsustainable, and the risk when it's unsustainable will be for the temptation for Putin to do something new and novel to try to break the deadlock on the battlefield, and that's where the, the risk of using unconventional weapons becomes much more possible. If it does result in a deadlock, which you said it probably will, what is the likelihood that he'll just snap and start using, as you said, unconventional weapons? No one knows. And, and, and this is the problem, because he's he's fighting two battles. He's fighting the one war in the Ukraine, which will be his external enemy, but he's also fighting a war internally, which is keeping his control of power and his internal regime intact. And if the sense starts to build up in Russia because of the continual losses to their own soldiers, he may find his own power under threat. 
if that happens, how he will respond, I don't know. He might say, okay, it's time to negotiate, and, he, and they might try to find a treaty in between. But right now, they are a long way away from trying to to get any solid ground on a peace deal, or he might try to escalate that. He might try to escalate it and say, "Well, I'll try to fight my way out," or scare the opposition out by doing something different. No one knows what will happen if Putin starts to lose. What would a peace deal look like? Because it seems Ukraine, Ukraine's only demand is Russia leave, completely leaves its territory, including Crimea. But what would a peace deal look like? Do you think? The territory is, is one part of it, and it's a critical part because the, whether you will get all of the Ukraine back, including the Crimea, and including the disputed eastern sections, is is a, diff- a difficult topic. But the other considerations of what normally goes into a peace deal are consider- considerations of restoration, like like they, they they pay compensation for the damage that they've done. Uh, you may also want to be looking at what you do with the war criminals and whether these people will be brought to justice or whether perhaps a deal would be made whereby you have a truth commission and these people aren't brought to justice. But it's it's the territory, it's the restoration, it's the war crimes that you have to settle. And right now, they're nowhere near solving any of them. They're, they're still both belligerent at a point where they are fighting tooth and nail, thinking that they can defeat completely the other one. And I think that's unlikely. So you've got to get to a point where they both feel either exhausted and are ready to make a deal or something different happens. That was University of Waikato Professor Alexander Gillespie talking about Western nations donating tanks to Ukraine. You're in the wire for Ramere Friday. Remember, you can get in touch with us, 5395, if you wish to text in, 093093879, if you wish to give us a call. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you've heard so far. We'll be right back after this short break. Are our affairs current? Richard, great question. The Wire. Performing in New Zealand for the first time in five years. Lord. Live at the Outer Fields at Western Springs, March 4th. The long-awaited tour. From pure heroine to melodrama to solar power. Do we fine with this? We didn't come from don't miss Lord with special guests Marlon Williams, Phaser Days, and Ricky Reed. March 4th at the Outer Fields at Western Springs. Get your tickets now from Ticketmaster. What's a seven letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club there's DJs Tarkas and Katja. And tomorrow, Jungle Fowl Live, followed by Venetia Clark and Cody Skull. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Audio. Culture. Tune in to 95BFM Drive every second Tuesday as they're joined by one of our friends from Audio Culture, sharing the songs, stories and salacious scandal from which is woven the mighty tapestry of New Zealand music. Audio Culture, more cultured than a blue cheese with a BA. Every other Tuesday on 95BFM Drive. Thanks to Audio Culture. Iwi Waiata, the noisy library of New Zealand music. Go to audioculture.co.nz. I'm disappointed by the government these days. Sometimes they just need a good kick in the backside. The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire for Ramere Friday. Daniel, interesting piece you have about sharks. True, yeah. While fish and chip shop customers in South Australia are eating threatened and endangered shark species labelled as flake, sharks are are facing the risk of being extinct. 
A 2020 study concluded sharks were functionally extinct on 20% of the world's coral reefs. And a new study building on this research from the journal Nature Communications shows now that two in three of the world's sharks are being driven to extinction. I spoke about this with shark researcher Samantha Sherman. Since the early 70s, the world's population of oceanic sharks has fallen by 71%. The cause? Overfishing. The director Spielberg tells in an interview with BBC's Desert Island Disc about his guilt he feels about the harm his film Jaws has done to sharks. That's one of the things I still fear. Not to get eaten by a shark, but that sharks are somehow mad at me for the feeding frenzy of crazy sport fishermen that happened after 1975, which I truly and to this day regret the decimation of the shark population because of the book and the film. I really, truly regret that. A new research shows that two in three of the world's sharks and rays that depend on coral reefs are being driven to extinction. The reason is again simple, overfishing. The title of your latest research is Half a Century of Rising Extinction Risks of Coral Reef Sharks. Why did the last 50 years the risk of extinction rise? Our oceans have been overfished for a while. And in the past 50 years, technology has advanced to the point where we can take huge amounts out of the ocean. And simultaneously, our population is increasing. So we need to be fishing more so that people can be fed. And a lot of that population happens to live in the coast right next to coral reefs. So they're a big food source. What characteristics make sharks susceptible for overfishing? So sharks and rays have long lifespans. Uh, some of them don't reach maturity until they're over 20 years old, meaning that they won't have the opportunity to reproduce until then. And if they're fished before then, we're fishing populations of juveniles. So we're losing the adults and the juveniles at the same time without having enough adults left to replace what's being fished out. Two in three of the sharks that depend on coral reefs are drifting to extinction. Sharks are important for the whole ocean ecosystem. Uh, what role do sharks play in a healthy ocean ecosystem? Sharks and rays are uh, at the higher end of the food chain. So they help balance the ecosystem. They also distribute nutrients from other sources. So for example, gray reef sharks are, as their name suggests, are a type of reef shark but they actually can get up to 80% of their diet from pelagic resources, which is the open ocean. And coral reefs are nutrient deficient areas. Everything on a coral reef needs lots of nutrients. So having these gray reef sharks feed elsewhere, but bring the nutrients back to the reef is extremely beneficial and provides a lot of nutrients that the reefs need to keep growing. If they disappear, we would have trophic cascades because we're losing all those top predators. What, what is that? So a trophic cascade is when the top predators get removed for, are removed from an ecosystem 
And then the mesopredators, which are more like the rays, the things in the middle that they're predators and they consume other animals, but they are also prey to larger animals. They start becoming much more abundant. Their populations will grow. And then the level below them, the consumers will start, their populations will start to dwindle because they're being preyed upon by much more, many more animals. And so it just throws everything out of balance. And what will be the effects for human beings if that happens? Everything is connected and healthy coral reefs are really important for humans. Firstly, for food security, because if sharks disappear and then the rest of the fish populations, like I mentioned with the trophic cascades, would be thrown out of control, it would really deplete all the fish in the ocean that humans rely on. Climate change will also worsen because the oceans can um, suck carbon and hold on to it. But if they're not healthy without all the animals, then they won't be able to recycle as much. We need healthy sharks to have healthy oceans. The image of the shark is kind of bad. We're scared for sharks, maybe partly because of movies that were made about sharks. Um, why do you think the, the bad image of, of sharks exists? Thankfully, I think that's changing quite a bit. Yeah, movies didn't do sharks any favors, but at the same time, I loved Jaws growing up. I love Deep Blue Sea. I love watching all these shark movies with my lab mates and lots of other people that work on sharks. The problem is that people are already not comfortable in the water compared to on land. You can't move as fast. You can't see everything. So not being able to see something, not feeling as comfortable as you do on land just makes it that much scarier to think that a shark may be there and you don't know. But the reality is that if sharks really wanted to eat people, there would be a lot more people being eaten by sharks. We do hear of it happening, but anytime it happens, it makes global news. It's quite rare considering how often and how many people are in the oceans. I think I read or saw somewhere that the risk of a uh, candy machine falling on you is bigger than that you're attacked by a shark. Yeah, there's so many of those statistics. You're more likely to die from a dog bite. You're more likely to die from a coconut falling on your head. More likely to win the lottery, to be struck by lightning. All of those things are true, but sharks just have that... I don't know, that factor that the media really loves, so you hear about them a lot. Do you think that plays a role in their risk of extinction? Absolutely. Like I said, less so now. I think people are really understanding 
the role sharks play a lot more and people are more fascinated by them now and have a respect for them. But when you think about it, all the shark nets that people want to put in place or drum lines to reduce shark numbers at certain beaches, people that actually spend the most time in the water, like surfers and divers, they don't want that. They know Mm. that they're doing an activity and taking a risk that's, you know, you're more likely to drown than get bitten by a shark and they want a healthy ocean and they're actually mostly against Mm. reducing shark numbers. So I think that's really telling that the people that spend the most time near sharks want more sharks. Why, Why do you find sharks so fascinating? So I saw my first shark on a glass bottom boat in the Bahamas when I was four years old. It was just a beautiful silhouette swimming through the water. And ever since then, I've been obsessed. I love sharks and rays. I think they're gorgeous. The more time you spend underwater with them, the more you see just the subtleties in some of their behaviors. People have this conception that they're that all they think about is eating and killing and, you know, that sort of mean spirit but really if you watch them you can see their eyes move and you can see them analyze a situation and really think about what they're doing that was dr samantha sherman postdoctoral research fellow at simon fraser university in vancouver and it is odd for somebody to pay you a hundred dollars for a photo of your feet that is not normal behavior the wire University of Canterbury astronomer Professor John Hernshaw is calling for national legislation to limit light pollution. He proposed a law that would set new controls on outdoor lighting, such as a 10pm curfews for illuminated advertising signs, limited on what street lights could admit, and reductions in blue lights across cities and towns. I spoke to Richard Easter from the University of Auckland about what would happen if New Zealand started to regulate light pollution. New Zealand wants to open a new dark sky project. How's the project going? How far along are they? So there's a bunch of um, areas in New Zealand that have had themselves uh, designated as dark sky reserves, I think I think the terminology is, and they range from, uh, you know, Aotea, um, Great Barrier, uh, you know, in the vicinity of Auckland, uh, the Tekapo region in the Mackenzie Basin, and, and a whole bunch of others um, have been sort of slowly springing up. And then involves, um, as I understand it, the local authority, you know, passing a bylaw around, um, you know, making sure that there isn't excessive uh, light pollution uh, from, you know, street lamps and so forth. And the idea is, you know, to preserve the quality of the night sky, um, you know, partly as an amenity for residents, but also in many cases because, uh, you know, uh, tourists will come to the region, uh, you know, because they can do stargazing either with the naked eye or with um, with telescopes. You know, it's um, it's kind of a marketing tool in some sense, but it also, um, in many cases, you know, preserves, you know, the natural value of the environment for, um, you know, for these regions. You know, they want to be able to make it clear to people that they're places that you can come and enjoy, you know, the night sky and, you know, pristine beauty. This might sound like a silly question, but, yeah, what kind of impact is light pollution having on our ability to observe the night sky? And um... But I think in terms of the 
access to the night sky. I mean, if you if you know you've had the experience of being out in the country at nighttime, you know, on a dark night, I mean, you know, the moon's not in the sky. Um, you know, it's not cloudy, and you look up and you just see this. You know, the the, the sky above you is an amazing sight. And for city dwellers or people who live on the edges of cities, um, you know, because even if you're not, um, you know, right in the city itself. Uh, you know, the ability to do that has been sort of slowly nibbled away over the last hundred years, and it hasn't it hasn't vanished suddenly, um, but it's certainly, you know, massively less than what it used to be, and it would be great to preserve what we've got, but also to get as much of that back. Is it realistic if we, um, if we passed a law limiting light pollution, um, is it realistic that we could see more of the night sky in urban areas? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the good things about light pollution, I guess, is that you know when you turn off the light, it goes away. It's not something that's um, you know persistent in the environment. Um, I think the challenge is, is you know part of those two challenges. Firstly, the the question of like where is the light actually coming from, and a lot of it is coming from streetlights. Um, some of it is coming from you know light coming out of people's windows, um, advertising signs, stuff like that. Um, so there's probably definitely an argument for a kind of 80-20 approach where you go after the easiest things first, you know, many of which are maintained by local authorities. Um, but um, the other issue is, is that you know, a lot of light fixtures that have been built um, are LED-based, and they last a lot longer than the ones that they're replacing. So the other thing is, is you, know, you wouldn't necessarily want to be replacing you know, light fixtures that worked perfectly well. Um, so I think there is, a ten- no, there is definitely a kind of window uh, where we would like to be saying, you know, as soon as possible, we would like to, um, you know, see these changes made. So that every time we put something, you know, at the top of a pole, it's not going to be there for 20 years. What would the law look like? What kind of changes would be made, do you think? Uh, as m- I understand it. It's mainly um, bylaws and standards around, um, you know, construction and planning. So it would be the same kind of law that says that, you know, you need to have a certain kind of insulation in your house. Um, also, you know, roads and, um, you know, sort of public fixtures, there's often kind of codes of practice um, that are established by local bodies that they'll then adhere to. I mean, you know, the streetlights are put up mostly by, the, by you know, towns and cities, uh, not, not by private individuals. And so in some ways, it, it's, you know, city councils and town councils telling, them to, telling themselves um, to, you know, to, to do things differently. Um, the other challenge, of course, is, you know, there's lots of local authorities around New Zealand and each of them would have to have that discussion by themselves. So the people who are pushing for this are very keen to see a national standard so that it, in some ways, you know, saves time and effort, and we don't have to have the same conversation a hundred times. The proposed legislation has been c- compared to something that's already on the books in France. What what does that look like? Do you know? Um, I, I know less about that. Um, my understanding is that it's quite detailed. That you know has you know um, standards around um, house design and stuff like that. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the more detailed you make the legislation, um, you know, the more challenging it will be to get it passed. Um, so I think, I think the French one is quite comprehensive, and I think, you know, there's obviously going to be a conversation to be had in New Zealand around, um, you know, do we, do we go for the, you know, lowest hanging fruit first in some sense? Um, and I, I think particularly given that a lot of, um, you know, outdoor lighting now lasts a very long time, I think it's really important to get standards in about the, the most obvious sources of um, artificial light at night and um, and to do that as quickly as possible. So whether we went down the exact French route or whether we did something for our own, I think that's you know, a discussion for us to have. 
a lot of people who will be listening to this live in cities and you touched on it very briefly before, but for people living in cities, why is this important? I mean, I think one thing is notable, you know, even in Auckland, I, I, I spend a long time living in, um, you know, large cities. So I've lived in um, Tokyo and New York and spent a lot of my time on the East Coast at the end of it. And even in quite small towns there, um, you know, if you're, if you're on that kind of part of you see very little of the night sky. And so in Auckland, you know, if you go into the domain or into a park um, at night, you, you can see more stars. Uh, and so the better we control light in, you know, in Auckland itself, um, the more stars you would be able to see in Auckland, as well as obviously on the, you know, on the urban fringes of Auckland itself. That was, that was Richard Esther from the University of Auckland talking about light pollution. That was The Wire. Kua ere te hātoka katoa mō tēnei wiki, e te mihi ki a koutou katoa e kororo mō kiau mō tēnei rā. That's a wrap on the Friday Wire. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us today. City Councillor Mike Lee, Lisa Woods, Campaigns Director for Amnesty International Aotearoa, Chris Button from the University of Otago, Dr Samantha Sherman, Postdoctoral Research Fellow at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Professor Alexander Gillespie from the University of Waikato, and Richard Esther from the University of Auckland. Eda hoki te mihi kia koutou e whakarongo ana. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to 95BFM. I will now leave you with Murray with the 1-2, to two, Land of the Gagroof. Kakite. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.